Hello and welcome to another episode of Olivia's Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Breitkoff. Today I have with me uh, Stephanie Clegg, who is a science instructor and science student. And so I wanted to uh, have a conversation with her about uh, science education. Hi, Stephanie. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jason. Thanks for having me today. So since this is your first time on the podcast, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, etc.? Absolutely. So um, I'm originally from Woburn, Massachusetts. I grew up as the youngest of five children. I went to boarding school in Andover at Phillips Academy Andover. Um, I was the first in my family to go away to prep school or any boarding school. I went to Amherst College where I majored in chemistry and psychology and completed my pre-med requirements and served as the captain of the women's field hockey and ice hockey teams. I took three years off before my graduate education where I um, coached at Amherst College for one year and then researched on the breast oncology team at Mass General uh, doing clinical research. I'm currently a fourth year medical student at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester and I'm in the process of applying to residency and I'm applying into orthopedic surgery. Okay. So the reason I wanted to, thank you so much for that. The reason why I wanted to have you on the show is I wanted to talk a little bit about something that we haven't spoken about a lot on, on the pod. And a lot of what we've talked about has been um, getting into college, the college application process, uh, college application essays, financial aid, things like that. But I really wanted to talk, dive deep a little bit more and talk about um, your experience uh, because I think it would be um, informative for the listeners at home, and so for so for you to know to understand, uh, primarily we have parents and educators who listen to the podcast. Although there are a few students, high school students, who listen, from what I understand. Um, so when you were in high school, or even younger, did you know that oh, I wanted to be a doctor? I did not. Um, I think something that's sort of unique to my experience is that there's no one in my family who's in medicine. Um, there's no one who's a nurse or even like a volunteer in a hospital. And so for me, I didn't have that you know, iconic role model who was pushing me towards the field of medicine. Uh, my dad is a mechanical engineer, so he always encouraged me to pursue math and science. And, and I sort of naturally gravitated to that as well. And so um, when I was in high school, I wanted to have a well-rounded education in, ter- in terms of the sciences. And so I, I made it a goal to you know, take biology and chemistry and physics. And then when I got to college, um, it was actually like my teammates who were very um, interested in going to medical school. And I thought, you know, maybe this is what I should do too. You know, I love the sciences. Maybe this is where my field will lead me. So before we talk more about that, um, you mentioned that your dad was a mechanical engineer. So he went to college. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so was college a, a, a natural um, outcome for your education? Was that, was that what was expected of you and your siblings or of you alone by your parents? It wasn't something that was necessarily expected. Um, so my dad took a somewhat circuitous route um, towards getting his uh, degree in mechanical engineering. He had essentially like completed night school while my brothers um, were younger. And so you know, growing up, we didn't really sit around the kitchen table talking about, you know, our degrees or anything like that. He was always pushing me just, you know, work hard, enjoy what you're doing, and and hopefully um, education would open up some doors for me. And so there was never an expectation that I was going to go to, uh, you know, a particular school or to go get a graduate education. 
but my parents provided me with all the tools, working multiple jobs, providing the finances, and providing me with the encouragement to just keep working and keep moving forward. So you mentioned that your dad always encouraged you to study, and your parents in general uh, study sciences, uh, math and science. When did you know that that was your interest? Like, how young were you when you decided, oh yeah, math and science, I like that better? (laughs) I think that was actually pretty young. In first grade, I had this teacher um, who was a little more science inclined, and she would teach almost like kitchen experiments where uh, she really got us involved, and that was my first like experimental, uh, I guess, experience. And so... I enjoyed spending more time doing math and science. I liked that there was, you know, a problem that was presented to me and I could have a black and white answer. It infuriated me that this, the, the languages and um, reading classes, there were a bunch of different ways to interpret a problem. And so I liked to see the answer and to say that was correct. There's no other solution. <laughs> okay. Um, that makes sense. So one of the things you mentioned was that when you were at Amherst College, and just for our listeners at home, in case you're not familiar with Massachusetts or the colleges here, Amherst College is a small liberal arts college in Amherst, Massachusetts. It's not to be confused with the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, which is a completely different school, although they are, um, I would say, geographically relatively close together. Um, they are different schools, uh, so please don't confuse them. Uh, when you were said you were at Amherst, you, uh, your teammates mentioned that they were interested in medicine, and you mentioned sports. So these were your sports teammates. You were uh, on the team, shall we say, at school? Yes, and so at Amherst, um, I played field hockey and ice hockey for four years, and my high school had really prepared me well to balance rigorous academics and multiple sports. And so for me, it was very, very natural and like seamless fit um, and transition to Amherst, I actually found that my high school classes were harder than my first year chemistry <laughs> classes. Um, I hadn't, re- I didn't encounter anything that I hadn't seen before until like the last few weeks of uh, freshman spring in college. And so uh, the transition for me was a little easier. But um, yeah, I know it was sort of the culture on our team to, to work really hard sort of in our sports, but then to, to work really hard in the classroom. And it was it was considered cool to be smart. And so that was helpful that, you know, everyone around around us was supporting us in, in all avenues and all passions that we had. Now, because Amherst College is a, is a liberal arts college, it's a smaller school, um, comparatively speaking. Um, while the sports teams, I'm sure, are, are very serious, it's not a school that's known for athletics primarily. It's not, uh, athletics is not the thing that Amherst is most famous for. So, I would think that um, the, the students who are on the teams are not students who, whether it's the male teams or the female teams, students who are expecting to go into sports for a professional living. So, you, so this is more of a, of a academic environment we're talking about. Would that, would that be an accurate assessment? Absolutely. And I think um, our ice hockey coach was a very successful coach. We actually won two national championships Um, while I was there and he was most proud of the team my sophomore year where we had um, 11 girls on our ice hockey team that were pre-med and to this day I guess January of 2019 10 of them are either attending physicians residents or current medical students the other one got her doctorate of nurse doctorate of nursing so um you know, the students were very motivated in the classroom, and, and that sort of translated to our success, you know, on the ice and, and, and in the other avenues. 
as well. What, what would you say were the biggest challenges in your uh, science classes at Amherst? I would say something that is you know unique to the liberal arts experience. I can only speak to the experience I had at Amherst was we were never groomed to have a bunch of information in front of us and memorize that information so that we could regurgitate it. The approach that that our professors really took were they were going to help us build our toolbox so that when we were later given various problems, we could sort of pull from our toolbox and figure out how to um, solve those problems. So in college, a lot of our exams were... um, for example, chemistry exams were like 24-hour take-home exams where you had problem sets that you had to, you know, spend a certain amount of time on them in the library, and you were expected to, some of them were open books, some of them weren't, but you were expected to sort of use your toolbox. There was no regurgitation, and I think that actually was a major transition for me to then go to medical school where so much of it is based on memorization. So one of the things that you mentioned uh, at the beginning of, the, of, the, of our talk just now is that you did not go straight from undergrad to medical school, where I think that is the stereotype of a lot of medical students. Uh, whether or not it's true, it is the stereotype where students do pre-med in undergrad and then apply to medical school and go right out of uh, undergrad and they're 21, 22 years old starting medical school. Uh, you said you took a couple years off and you worked. Uh, and you did some research. Now, what was that research again? So I was researching as a clinical research coordinator in the breast oncology team at Massachusetts General Hospital, and I was overseeing uh, some drug development trials. So, for example, patients would come in. Um, I would, I would have you know screened them to see if they were eligible for specific treatments, and then scheduled their appointments based on the protocols that our pharmaceutical companies have provided us, and then I would you know, collect blood samples, perform EKGs. So it was a very hands-on experience that sort of gave me a a well-rounded perspective of what, you know, a medical oncologist might be doing day to day and really set me up well to then continue on my medical studies. So if a person was interested in the sciences but not necessarily interested in becoming a doctor or a nurse, uh, this sort of research, is that typical of what a person who studies science in college might uh, go into as a, as a professional field? I think it's one of many possibilities. Um, I think the kids who are interested in going to medical school will really try to get these, quote, clinical research coordinator positions in the Boston area because, I mean, the hospitals are phenomenal. So they are highly sought after by kids who are considering medical school or PA school or nurse practitioner school. So Um, I would say that's the high percentage of kids that are looking at those positions. But the skills that you learn there, and some of my teammates at my job, they did not go to medical school, and now they work in pharmaceutical companies or they work in um, industry. So those skills were definitely transferable to other fields. So now you're you're in medical school, and you said you're a fourth year. How long do you have to go to school to become a doctor? (laughs) Don't remind me of that answer. (laughs) Um, So the training for medical school, 99% of schools are four years. There are, are, or there is a movement towards making some medical schools three years long. So NYU currently, I think, is the only school that offers that. But hands down, it's pretty much four years of medical school. Prior to that, students will have completed four years of an undergraduate degree 
in some variation um, if they completed like a post-baccalaureate degree where they were completing their pre-med requirements. So there are kids in my class who took five years off in between medical school and undergrad or had, you know, other careers and then came and decided to go to medical school. So the, so after graduating from medical school, you then have to go into your residency training and that's anywhere from three to seven or, or nine years, depending on what you go into, and then usually do a fellowship. So right now for orthopedic surgery, I'm looking at another five to seven years of training afterwards. And just for any listener at home who's not 100% certain what that is, could you define orthopedic surgery? Uh, so orthopedic surgeons, they focus on any muscular skeletal issues that patients come in. They um, are able to evaluate and diagnose, you know, non-operative problems to to the operative side of things. Um, and examples of procedures that they do very commonly, hip replacements, knee replacements, um, arthroscopic uh, procedures like if someone tears their ACL or has a meniscus tear. Um, carpal tunnel releases, trigger finger releases. Uh, they do a lot of operations on the spine. Um, so they really span like a whole gamut. They cover oncology. There's a ton of opportunities within it, but everything that's sort of bone and muscle related. What interested you about this field? So this field, um, it sort of fits very seamlessly with my upbringing as an athlete. Um, you know, I was exposed to orthopedics from an early age just through minor sports injuries. I didn't have this catastrophic ACL tear that then inspired me to go into orthopedics or anything, but um, you know, I, I really love the process of seeing something like tangibly wrong on an x-ray and then going into the OR and fixing it and that sort of aligns with my my draw to math and science where I saw something, I saw a problem and I wanted to fix it. Um, I, there's a lot of teamwork required to succeed in orthopedics and in any operating room environment because you have to work with an anesthesiologist and a nurses and you know residents and so I love that camaraderie and particularly for orthopedic surgeon surgery it's one of the few fields where you can really improve quality of life and so that gets me excited and and I'm excited to sort of see what the next seven or eight years holds. So currently you're working uh, at the company where I work. You're working uh, at Chiton and you are a tutor. So what do you tutor? So I tutor everything from um, elementary school math to AP chemistry, um, ACT, SAT, and English and writing. So what I'm most interested in uh, discussing with you is not the test prep part because we have um, other episodes on that and other thing, uh, other conversations I've had about that. But I'm interested more in the uh, science tutoring um, so when a student comes to you, they're taking, say, AP chemistry, you said, uh, what is that experience like? What, what are they looking for and what are they hoping to get out of that experience in your observation? Sure. So most of the tutoring that I do is sort of defined as homework help. So a student might come in and say, you know, I have this worksheet that I need to complete or I have this laboratory write-up that I need help with. And, you know, we did the lab today in class, but I didn't really understand it. Can you Can you walk me through it? Or... I have a midterm in a week and my teacher gave me um, this this worksheet and this packet to, to work through to help organize my thoughts. Can we talk through these topics? And so we'll sort of go through each of the topics one by one and I'll answer any of their questions and then sort of give them, help them build their toolkit um, that I think is like the best approach to education. So I always encourage them, you know, I want to help you get the answer to this problem, but I want to also set you up to really be able to 
get any question right on your exam or, or, or on any essays or anything like that. So sometimes when I've uh, worked with students and tutored them, one of the frustrations I've had is when students walk in the door and they, they don't want to know why or how something works, they just want answers, uh, as if I am a human answer key. Uh, have you experienced that with students? <laughs> I've experienced that a little bit, um, but I try to sort of bring them back to the major concepts and I say, you know, I remind them of my toolkit, my toolbox approach and um, sort of put them on the spot and I'll ask them, I'll say, okay, so how did you approach this problem and why did you approach it like that? And sort of tell me what, you know, ionization energy means to you. What does electronegativity mean? And if they can't describe those concepts to me, then I'm sort of like, okay, we're going to back up. We need to talk about some big picture items before we actually get to the answer here. So I know that you said you went to uh, Phillips Academy in Andover, and for those of you listening at home, uh, you can squee now because it is one of, if not the most prestigious uh, private boarding schools in the country, so we're duly impressed, Stephanie. Um, so did you take AP classes or AP tests when you were at Andover? Um, so first, thank you. I appreciate your kind words. I loved my experience They're only there. slightly snarky. <laughs> They're mostly kind. And don't confuse it with Exeter. Oh, no, not that. Please. That's, that's all the way up in New Hampshire. Yes. So don't don't confuse the tundra. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting about the Andover curriculum is that they don't have designated AP honors or, you know, general education levels. It's sort of, they have these numeric, at least when I was there, um, but they had these numerical scales that sort of went from 100 to 600. And so you could sort of gauge where you were at based on what level you were, you had started in. When I went there, I started at like the very basic levels of standard math and whatnot. But by the time I graduated, I had taken um, their equivalent of like AB calculus. And although they are not labeled as AP classes and the teachers do not you know, pride themselves on teaching to the AP exam, you will feel very confident going and taking any of the AP exams after you finish that. So when I was there, I took math, the math AP exam, the chemistry AP exam, U.S. history, and maybe in English or something. Um, so when you're working with AP students now, um, how, how valuable do you think AP is to, to help, help prepare students for college. Because again, I've talked about AP uh, on the pod and, and in, the, in the videos that we have, but what are your thoughts on the value of AP for, college, for high school students applying to college and just in terms of the education they receive in an AP class versus a non-AP class, in your opinion, yeah. again? I think my overall opinion is just continue to challenge yourself regardless of what level you're at. I think... You know, if that means that you are taking all of the AP classes at your high school, awesome. If you are maxing out at that level, you know, maybe there's a local college that you can take a class at. If you are unable to sort of handle that that course load, take those honors classes or those, um, you know, those mid-tier classes that you need to take to really maximize your potential and, and get you where you need to get. Um, I think what's interesting is that there's just great variability in terms of what different institutions de uh, or label as advanced placement. And so I think without knowing the background of the high school itself, it's hard to interpret um, what an AP class is like in one town versus the other town. And even like regionally 
or you know east coast versus west coast those can be very different things and so the a ap exam is the only way to standardize the process so if you want to prove to colleges that you know you are at a certain level what regardless of whether or not your class is labeled as an advanced placement class you can take the exam and get a four or five on it and then they now know where you stand on a sort of a standardized level one last thing before I, I know you have a, a, a to meet with some students tonight uh, before I let you go one last question um, there, this is an experience I've had with a couple of students with whom I've worked who they were interested in a medical field but uh, they've flat out told me well I'm, I'm not smart enough to become a doctor so I'm gonna go into nursing not because I want to be a nurse or I'm gonna become a physical therapist not because I want to be but because I'm too dumb to be a doctor. And my thought has always been, people choose nursing for the passion and love of nursing. People choose physical therapy because of the passion and love for, for doing that job. If your passion is to be a doctor, I'd say shoot for it. Maybe you'll fail, maybe you'll succeed, but at least shoot for it. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, and have you heard anything like that? Yes, I definitely agree with that approach, Jason. I think, so I will openly admit, I took my MCAT, which is like the medical college admissions test, um, sort of like the ACT for college, but it's the, the MCAT uh, is for medical school. So I took that exam twice. I did not perform well the first time and performed significantly better the second time only after doing a lot of like self-evaluation and, and uh, review of how I had prepared for the first test. And I had to, you know, say, I didn't prepare correctly for that. So... I would say there are the, you know, nursing versus being a doctor versus physical therapy, respiratory therapist, though the foundations of the different fields within medicine are wildly different. And so the roles and the responsibilities that you do on a daily basis are very, very different. And I think it's worth exploring the different options um, because your 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 day-to-day -day looks different, your lifestyle looks different, um, and there's just... You know, you owe it to yourself if you're exploring a field in medicine to just sort of explore explore all of the options um, before you really, you know, jump into one and, and, and go into one field. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate this. Uh, again, you're talking about a topic I don't know as much about, so I, 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 love, <laughs> I love that I get to learn something, too. Yes. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jason. All right. Well, thank you also for those of you listening at home. Uh, please let us know if you like this episode in your podcast app, a listening app of choice. You can fave, star, heart, like, thumb up, whatever the app lets you do, let us know. Hit that share button too. Send it out to your friends and family. Remember, if they listen to it in a different app or on the internet, it still counts for us. We still get the numbers. So we want people to listen to it. Please remember to subscribe. That way you get episodes downloaded to your phone or your other listening device as soon as possible. And if you want to talk to us and let us know what you think, we do have that Twitter account. It's uh, at Livius Pod. You can just Drop us a comment there, ask a question, and we'll uh, follow up with you. And if, you, if we get enough... Uh, questions from you, we can do a whole episode answering your questions. So thank you so much, and as always, let's keep learning.